I am Rabbi Stephen Carr Rubin. I am the Rabbi Emeritus here at Kehillat Israel, Reconstructionist Congregation of Pacific Palisades, California. I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about, well, some of my favorite stories. And one of them is about words mattering and how much words matter. Um, does anybody who was here last time remember any story that I told from the Talmud? I think I might have told a couple. I talked a lot about prayer a little bit last time and about uh, morning prayers. And um, so rather than answer the question I just asked, I'm going to say a prayer because we like to begin study moments with this prayer. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah which is the prayer that expresses gratitude for the opportunity to occupy ourselves with words of Torah. La'asok B'Divrei Torah means to occupy ourselves with words of Torah. Um, and we say that prayer in part before we have every Torah study, to set a spiritual tone for what we're doing. And secondly, to, in a sense, remind us of the power of prayer, regardless of what your theology might be, which I'll talk about next time, or whatever you may think about God and godliness and God concepts, that in Judaism, the whole series of morning prayers and the one I just said, as far as I'm concerned, are fundamentally about gratitude. It's about a consciousness of gratitude and how and the power of ritual. Um, ritual often falls out of favor because people don't see the meaning of lots ancient rituals often. They say, well, how does that relate to the modern world? To me, the power of ritual, like lighting candles on Friday night or saying a particular blessing at a particular moment, like the one I just said before we study, the power of ritual is to, number one, ground us, to remind us of the of the blessings that we have in our lives. And whenever we say, like we say a blessing over wine, we say a blessing over food, we say a blessing over study, we say a blessing over anything, it raises our sort of spiritual energy to connect with something beyond ourselves, uh, which is in many ways for me what religion's all about. It's about not only creating a ground of values and ethics and a way of life, it's not only about creating community and a sense of belonging, which certainly is what Judaism is about, uh, more about belonging than it is about belief, but it's also a way of reminding us of the things that matter most in life. Because it's so easy in the the busyness of our everyday lives, in the pushes and pulls, the traumas that we experience, the challenges we experience just getting through the day, living, getting food, having relationships. It's so easy to get so caught up in that that you don't spend time taking a breath and thinking about what I would call higher issues of life than just survival. And that's what religion's about. It's to remind us, and that's the power of ritual, is that it reminds you of the things for which it's important to be grateful. I read this last time, but I know there are a few people who are new. So because I'm going to be quoting from Talmud in just a moment, I want to read this again. It's only two lines anyway. This is how I described what the process of Talmud is about. This is Talmud talk. So imagine that this is what you were reading. Thomas Jefferson said to Abraham Lincoln, I do not think that the framers of the Constitution had it in mind to prohibit slavery. To which Lincoln answered, I can't conceive that they did not. At which point John Fitzgerald Kennedy interrupted, Mr. Jefferson, you are correct in theory, but Mr. Lincoln, you are correct in practice. Now that rather silly dialogue that I just created that included Jefferson from 17-whatever and Lincoln from 18-whatever and Kennedy from 19-whatever 
wouldn't happen, obviously, but it happens in Talmud. That's what Talmud is. Talmud is one commentary on another commentary on another commentary, as if across hundreds of years and generations, all these rabbinic sages are having a conversation, an argument, a discussion with each other. That's what we do, and we do that. Any of you who regularly come to Torah study, that's pretty much what you're doing. Someone will say something, you'll read a section from Torah, which was written thousands, literally thousands of years ago, and then you'll add your own commentary, and then you'll discuss it. Maybe you'll discuss it right now, but if you then share what a traditional commentator said about it, suddenly you're having a conversation and dialogue across generations. And that's what the the nature of the Talmud is that which makes it so much fun. So, here... I may have mentioned last time because I forget what I mentioned since I'm a stream of consciousness talker that there are two different kinds of conversations in the Talmud. There is uh, halakha and agadah. Halakha is, is legal conversations. You should do this, you shouldn't do this. Do this, don't do this. And agadah is the, is the schmoozing conversations and stories that the rabbis created and invented and made up and wrote in order to make a point. Some usually a ethical point or a, some other kind of point or to illustrate what they meant and why you should follow the halakha, a particular rule. So, here's something, for example. In the book of Numbers, because by the way, everything starts with Torah. Talmud starts with Torah. First you have Torah, then you have commentaries on Torah for a while, that's collected, becomes Mishnah, and then you have the Mishnah and commentaries on that, which after 500 years becomes 20 volumes of Talmud. So everything always goes back to something said in the Torah, even if it's really twisted to get there. So, in the book of Numbers, chapter 30, in case you wanted to look it up, in the book of Numbers, chapter 30, verse 3, it says something about the importance of keeping your word. It says it this way, If a householder makes a vow to God or takes an oath, imposing an obligation on himself, he shall not break his pledge. He must carry out all that has crossed his lips. Kind of a simple declaratory statement from the Torah, which says, if you make a promise, if you make a vow, you have to keep it. You have to keep your word. Words matter. There's no such thing in Jewish thought as mere words. Words are almost everything. How do you know what someone's thinking? By the words they say, or often by the actions that they perform as well. Words are so powerful that the whole world was created out of them. Right? In the Torah, the very first Beginning of Genesis, Bereshit, Bara Elohim, Et HaShemayim, Et It's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does God create? By talking. Elohim, and God said, let there be light. Eor, and there was light. And God said, let there be this, and there was that. God said, let the earth and the water separate, and the earth and the water separated. God said, let there be animals, and there's animals. God said, so from the very beginning of the Torah, we are taught the power of words, that words are creative, that words bring things into being. They certainly bring relationships into being. That's how we end up with relationships, by what you say to someone. You're interested in them. It's not going to work to create a relationship just by dancing around them. you got to speak. you got to have an intention. You have an authentic story tell, that you tell that person about yourself and them and the relationship you want to have. And if they're so inclined, they'll talk back and you'll have, end up with a, with a relationship. It's all the power of words that creates. So, here's a story from the Talmud, from Midrash, actually. It's entitled, Who's the Thief? Three angry men presented themselves in King Solomon's court. We know King Solomon, of course not from the Torah, but from later writings, who in all of Jewish thought 
is always held up as the wisest, right? Solomon the wise. So, if you have a problem, you go to King Solomon, because he's the wisest, he can always make a decision. Three angry men show up, present themselves in King Solomon's court. Your majesty said the first, the three of us are business partners. I know this will never happen to any of you. We went together on a business trip with a large sum of money. The second picked up the story. Shortly before Shabbat, we hid the money in a pit we had dug, planning to dig it up right after Shabbat. They didn't want to carry around the money on Shabbat, so they dug a hole that they all knew where it was, and they hid the money. King Solomon, being King Solomon, listened attentively. But when we went for it, said the third, it was gone. No one knew about it except for us. One of us is a thief. My Lord, I'd like for you to have each of us swear that he didn't steal the money. That way we can find out which of us is the thief, says one of the business partners. But King Solomon, being King Solomon, was in no hurry to make them swear anything. He knew that the man who stole the money would also lie and swear falsely. So how could he find out which of them was guilty? He said, come back tomorrow. Because he often said that in his stories. Come back tomorrow. So when the partners presented themselves the next day, King Solomon said, I can see that the three of you are very wise businessmen. So before we discuss your case, I would like your opinion about a different matter. King Solomon's flattery obviously worked well, and they waited eagerly to hear his problem and to share their own solution. So King Solomon told them the following story. A boy and a girl grew up together and swore to each other, swore to each other, that when they were old enough, they would become husband and wife. At the very least, they decided, they'd ask the other's permission before marrying anyone else. Made a vow to each other. Years passed. The girl, forgetting her oath, married someone else. Immediately after the wedding, she suddenly went, Oi! That's Talmudic language for oops. Um, she remembered her earlier commitment and told her husband about it. Oh, I made this vow to my childhood friend that either we would marry or I would ask his permission, and I forgot about it. He, her husband, being a noble guy, said, we cannot live as husband and wife until we find that boy and ask him to annul the, the vow that you swore to each other. Because it says in the Torah, if you make a vow, you have to keep it. And the only way you can get out of that is to have the person to whom you made the vow absolve you from having to keep the vow. So they took a bunch of money with them and set out to find her childhood friend. In fact, they found him, said King Solomon, and they offered to pay him in order to annul the vow. But, since he was a good man also, he wished them a hearty mazel tov, in good Talmudic language, and he refused to take the money. On their way home, the happy new couple was robbed. Please give us back the money, the woman pleaded to the thief. This would only happen in Talmudic stories. She pleads with the thief, please give us back the money. She told the robber about how good her husband was, being so patient as to let her take care of her oath, her vow before they moved in together, and that he was giving his own money to the boy that she had grown up with, and how good the boy she'd grown up with was for refusing to even take the money and of course, because it's a Talmud story, the robber was so touched, he returned the purse of money to them and let them go on their way. So, King Solomon looked at the three men who couldn't understand where all this was going, and he said, my question is, which of the people in this story was the most praiseworthy? Asked Solomon. So... Before I tell you his answer, what do you think about this story? If you were going to answer Solomon, which of these people, the three of them, the wife, the husband, the boyfriend from childhood, was the most praiseworthy, what would any of you say? 
If you're going to say something here, you need to use the microphone. And if you want to say something, you could the just thief. say something. Which? The thief. I would say the girl. The, money back. the thief because he gave the money back. Love that. Anybody the else? Hus- the husband. The husband because? He went along with all of this, gave his they, own money. Because he was giving his own money. Okay, oh, so no, I've got to say the wife because. In the first place. What was that? Who knew that the couple had, that she had the money to be robbed of in the first place? Oh yes, good question. So we're going to have a couple people here. Yes, go I'm ahead. I'm going to say the the wife because she took her vow to her ex friend very serious. The wife because she took it seriously and it had to do with words and pass it down. Anybody else? Well, the, uh, if Get I had close. to pick one, if I had to pick one, I would say the husband because he had respect for what had gone on before and for you know, vows and for things like that. It's the um, husband. He was showing respect to his wife for her own situation yes. that she'd created. But I don't I wouldn't necessarily feel the need to pick one. There's enough good to go around. Oh. So you wouldn't even pick one. They're all good. There's enough good to go around. Okay. Sure. Anybody else? They were all good, but I would choose the wife because she's the one who got this whole process going by recalling remembering her vow. So I would say the wife. Okay. So now I'm going to read what, why this story showed up and where Solomon took it. So he asked the partners, okay, so who do you think is the most praiseworthy? One of the partners said, as you heard here, the wife is the most admirable. She kept an oath she made when she was just a girl and, and maybe didn't even know better but thought enough of it as an adult to say, you know, I spoke these words, and words matter. The second partner said, now, her husband, echoing someone else, other people here, husband is the most praiseworthy. Although he loved his wife, he left home right after his wedding to find that boy, allowed himself to act as a husband to her only after she was released from her oath. The last partner said, it's true Both of them behaved in an exemplary exemplary fashion. The foolish one of all these people is the boy. Why did he take the money when they offered it to him? To which King Solomon then said, Oh, you're the thief, bellowing to the last partner. When you talk that way about the boy, you show you have an appetite for money, even if you have no right to it. I'm convinced you stole the money from your partners, and because this is a story in the Talmud, the last partner admitted his guilt, and the other two went home satisfied and impressed by the wisdom of Solomon. One of those classic Midrashic, agotic Talmud kinds of stories. Oh, here's a famous one. You may have heard this one before. To do a mitzvah for its own sake is the highest form of mitzvah without expecting a reward, to do a mitzvah without expecting a reward. In fact, it says in the Talmud, you should not do mitzvot for the sake of getting a reward. You should do them for their own sake, which is, of course, what the boy did. The boy did the mitzvah, not accepting the money, for the the sake of doing the mitzvah and releasing her from the vow. The man did, the husband did the mitzvah for its own sake, assuming he was going to actually lose the money that he was willing to put up for her. So I agreed with you all that they were all, in their own way, righteous. So this is a very famous story from the Midrash. The Midrash is called Pesikta Rabata, which is a sort of medieval Midrash. Um, and you may have heard this, but I always liked it. It says the following. There was once a, a Jew who owned a cow with which he plowed his field, And then it came to pass that this Jew became, unfortunately, financially challenged and was forced to sell his cow to one of his non-Jewish neighbors. The new owner plowed with the cow throughout the week, but when he took her out to the field to plow on Saturday, she kneeled under the yoke and refused to do any work. You know, he did hit her with his whip, and she still wouldn't budge from her place. So he was very frustrated. He brought the cow back to the Jew who had sold it to him, and he said, take your cow back. I worked with her all week. She was fine, but today I took her out, 
into the field and she refused to do anything. Of course, you already know where this is going. The Jew said to the cow's purchaser, come with me and I'll get her to plow. So they arrived in the field. The Jew took the cow aside and whispered. Don't you love these midrash? The cow, he whispered into the cow's ear, Oh, beloved cow, I'm so proud of you. When you were in my domain, you got to rest on Shabbat. Because in the Torah, it says on Shabbat, not only are you supposed to rest, not only is your whole household supposed to rest, not only are all the strangers in your midst supposed to rest, but your animals are supposed to rest. So I used to get, allow you to rest on Shabbat. But now that my own misgivings and sins, whatever they may be, have caused me to have to sell you to this non-Jewish man, please stand up and do whatever he asks you to do, because he's now your master, even if it means you have to plow today on Saturday, which is Shabbat. Immediately, because he was a very obedient cow, the cow stood up and prepared to work. According to the Midrash and Pesikta Rabati, the non-Jew said to the Jew, wait a minute, what's going on here? I'm not letting you go until you tell me exactly what you did, what you said to her, what have you, uh, you were like a wizard, you bewitched her. And the young Jewish man, not so young, told him what he had said to the cow. And of course, because this is a story from Jewish Midrash, when this man heard it, he was so amazed, he said to himself, if this creature, which has neither language nor intelligence, recognizes her creator as being Adonai, should not I, whom God has created in God's image and likeness, and imbued me with intelligence and understanding, shouldn't I also recognize that same God? So, this is the way these stories work in the Talmud. This man converted to become Jewish and studied Torah and became known as Yochanan ben Torta, which means Yochanan, the son of the cow. What's better than Talmud stories and Midrash? There are lots of stories like this in the Talmud of people being so impressed that they convert to Judaism and become Jews by choice. So, here's another one. This is a story about, also going back to, this goes back to Deuteronomy. One of the other mitzvot that we have in the Torah is the imperative to return something that's lost that you find. Several times in the Torah, it has different versions of that mitzvah. In particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it begins like this. It has a particular thing about it, an ox, because there's a lot of oxen. If you see your fellow Israelites' ox or sheep gone astray, don't ignore it, says the Torah. You must take it back to your peer. If your fellow Israelite does not live near you or you do not know who the owner is, you shall bring it home and it shall remain with you until your fellow Israelite comes to claim it then you have to give it back. In the meantime, you have to take care of it, keep it alive, and then give it back. You shall do the same with the person's garment or anything else, anything else that belongs to someone else that they lose, and you find you must not remain indifferent. You have to return it. It's a very powerful mitzvah because, after all, what's the human inclination? Oh, look, finders keepers. We even have a little ditty, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Do you want to say something, Bert? That clearly is your fellow Israelite. Did the rabbis ever get around to saying that applies also to non-Jews? Yes, the question is, yes, it's one thing if it's another Israelite and you want to keep it all in the family, but what about if you find something that belongs to a non-Jew? The, the Talmud numerous times says, Here's what you have to do with Jews. Oh, and by the way, you have to do the same thing with non-Jews. Mipnei darche shalom. That's usually the punchline. Mipnei darche shalom, meaning for the sake of peace. For the sake of peace in the community, you have to treat non-Jews the same way. And they often point to something that the rabbis of this congregation and every congregation talk about all the time, which is 
More than any other thing in the Torah, it reminds us that we were strangers and we know the heart of the stranger, and therefore we're supposed to treat the stranger as the homeborn, which it says in the Torah 36 times. You're supposed to treat the stranger like the homeborn. So a mitzvah that's good enough for the Jews, it's good enough for the non-Jews. So here is a story about that, a midrash, about based on that Torah, about that I just mentioned from, based on this Deuteronomy 22. You ready? Love this story. Rabbi Samuel ben Sosarta, who was a great scholar in the land of Israel, once made a long and difficult journey to Rome. Talmud and Midrash are filled with stories of rabbis going to Rome because Rome was kind of our arch enemy. After all, when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, it was by the Romans. So we have lots of stories in the Talmud of rabbis going to Rome and having interactions with important people and for some reason always coming out on top of these stories magically. So here's a story of Shmuel ben Sosarte. He went to Rome. And it's likely that he went there to intercede on behalf of his fellow Jews, Israelites, who were under the harsh rule of the Roman Empire at the time, for it was not unusual for leaders of the Jewish people to make those journeys whenever the need arose. Whatever his business in Rome was, a wonderful thing happened to him, according to the Midrash, walking along the main thoroughfare in Rome, which led straight toward the royal palace at the time, Rabbi Samuel suddenly noticed a string of beautiful pearls lying on the road. He picked them up, he admired their beauty, and he put them in his pocket. I wonder who lost this remarkable treasure. This is beautiful, beautiful string of beautiful pearls. And then he proceeded along his way. Surely it belonged to someone of great wealth and prominence. Presently, he came upon a very excited crowd, so he stopped to see what was happening. In the center of the crowd stood a royal herald, reading a proclamation. The Midrash says, here's the proclamation. To all the citizens of Rome, be it known that Her imperial majesty, the queen, lost a pearl necklace of rare beauty today in the streets of Rome. Whoever finds it is hereby ordered to return it to her majesty within 30 days, and he shall be richly rewarded, he or she. Should the finder return it after 30 days, even on the 31st day, the person will be beheaded. Proclamation was repeated several times while the growing crowd spoke excitedly about who would be the lucky person to find those pearls and be richly rewarded. What a rich reward that person would get. So Rabbi Samuel listened to the proclamation in silence, felt the pearls, I'm reaching into my pocket, felt the pearl necklace in his pocket, and he knew it was the queen's. He also knew that a rich reward awaited him at the palace should he return the necklace in the good time in between the next 30 days. But of course, he was in no hurry to return it at all. A day passed, and another, and many more. Every day heard the royal heralds read the proclamation again and again, promising a reward to the finder or cruel death should he not return it within 30 days. The whole populace of Rome seemed seething with excitement. Everyone's running around looking for these pearls. Still, Rabbi Shmuel ben Sosarte held on to the necklace in his pocket. Finally, the 30th day came. It was the last day to return the pearls to the queen. Rabbi Samuel took it out, polished it, made it look as presentable as possible, and then put it away again. On the following day, early in the morning, immediately after he finished his morning prayers, because he was a rabbi after all, he went to the palace. Inform the lady-in-waiting that an old Jew wishes to see the queen to tell her where her lost necklace is, he said to the guard. The guard disappeared at once, hastily returned, bidding Rabbi Shmuel to appear before the queen. I am indeed privileged to return this necklace to your majesty, Rabbi Samuel said, handing it over to the queen. The queen had already given up hope of ever seeing her beautiful necklace again, gasped with excitement as she beheld the most her most cherished treasure. For a moment, her eyes were full of gratitude to the aged Jew. Then she remembered it was the 31st day since she'd lost it, 
When did you find it? asked the queen. Thirty-one days ago, Rabbi Samuel replied. Were you in Rome all this time? Yes, your majesty. Didn't you hear the proclamation that was announced daily? The queen asked in amazement. I did, your majesty, Rabbi Samuel replied calmly. He obviously wasn't me. Calmly. Then why did you risk your head instead of collecting your rich reward? The queen asked, wondering whether the aged man was in his right mind. Your majesty, Rabbi Samuel replied, had I brought the necklace within 30 days, it would have appeared that I returned it either for the sake of your reward or for fear of your punishment. But neither one nor the other consideration prompted me. I'm returning to you your lost property simply because the Torah in Deuteronomy 22 that I just read to you, our Torah commands us Jews to return lost property to its owner, whoever he or she may be. We are happy to fulfill the commandments of our Torah without any reward. Moreover, we actually are ready to die for the observance of our Torah. You are indeed very fortunate to have such a wonderful Torah. Blessed is the God of the Jews, the queen exclaimed. And not merely was Rabbi Samuel's life spared, but he was given great honor and for many years. The story of Rabbi Samuel's pure and sincere honesty was the talk of all of the people of Rome, and he brought great honor to the Jewish people in so doing. This is the kind of stories we have in the Talmud, the kind of stories we have in our Midrash. How to, this is Agada, how to illustrate a simple mitzvah, a simple legal commandment, which is if you find something that's lost, it's your obligation to return it. And so we end up with stories like this, right? Here's another one, because this is about my favorite stories. Let's see. Oh, yeah. This is from uh, the Babylonian Talmud in the tractate Kiddushin 31a, in case you wanted to look it up. Um, and this is what it says. Very short story. It's Avimi, the son of Rabbi Abahu, taught, by the way, one of the commandments of the Talmud is to say things in the name of the person you learned it from. It's a very important principle of the rabbinic period of the Talmud is Ha'omer Devar B'Shem Omro. The person who, in fact, they ask you who gets into the, who merits the world to come? And one of the, and there's lots of different answers, but when the rabbis ask each other, who merits the world to come? <clears throat> that's one of their answers. Ha'omer Devar B'Shem Omro, the one who says something in the name of the person that they learned it from, giving credit. They were very much against, what's that? Plagiarism, thank you. Very much against plagiarism of any intellectual property. Interesting, we think all these things are new. Back in Talmudic times, they were very concerned about intellectual property. Intellectual property was, I came up with this idea, I taught it to you, you go say, oh, I came up with this great idea. Right? No, you say, Rabbi Rubin taught me so-and-so, or Rabbi whoever taught me, or whoever taught you, taught you that. And and it it's a matter of respect. It's a matter of integrity. It's a matter of the value of words and the importance of learning. All of that wrapped up in that same little mitzvah. Yes? And not stealing. And it goes back to a mitzvah of not stealing from someone else. You can steal many things. It's not just, I'm stealing a thing. You are forbidden from stealing their ideas. You're forbidden from stealing people's thoughts as well. And we know how much that happens every single day particularly in this current world of ours, of the Internet, where everything gets stolen constantly. So, here it is from the Babylonian Talmud. Avimi, the son of Rabbi Abahu, taught, there are those who feed, listen to this, you have to pay attention, there are those who feed their father rich, juicy chickens and end up in Gehenum, which is the rabbinic word for hell, essentially, while there are those who make their fathers work hard at grinding 
and they end up in Gan Eden, meaning heaven, meaning the world to come. Now, this is based on a sentence in the Talmud that talks about kavod av em, which is based, which means honoring your father and your mother, which is based on the Ten Commandments. We all know Ten Commandments, one of the most important commandments in the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and your mother. And, and then the Talmud talks about what does that mean? How do you honor someone? I have often had people come to me as a rabbi and wrestle with the problem of, I grew up with abusive parents. My parents were abusive, sexually or otherwise. My parents were abusive, and yet I'm commanded to honor my father and my mother. What does that mean, Rabbi? How do I do that? How do I do that when I carry so much resentment and anger at being abused the way I was abused by whoever they were abused by, by my parents in whatever way they were. Um, and what's interesting is that same conversation takes place in the Talmud because people are the same. People didn't suddenly become different now than they were thousands of years ago. People are people. And the Talmud's answer to that question, interesting, I didn't know I was going there, but I am. The Talmud's answer to that question is that the minimum... The minimum of fulfilling the obligation of honoring your father and mother is, is that if you have the ability to prevent them from becoming homeless, that's your minimum obligation, that they should have a place to be able to live and eat. That's your obligation. You don't have an obligation, according to the Talmud, in fulfilling that mitzvah to hang out with them, to see them X number of times a week, to do... Your obligation is that they shouldn't go homeless if you have the opportunity to, to do that, even if they were abusive in any event. So, based on the concept of honoring your father and your mother, this conundrum shows up in the Talmud. There are those who feed their father rich, juicy chickens and end up in Gehenna in Eld, while there are those who make their fathers work hard at grinding and they end up in Gan Eden. Then they have, rabbis always love to ask questions that they then know the answer to. So, they ask the question, how can a person who feeds his father rich, juicy chickens end up in Gehenna, when that would apparently be a good thing to do? And they give this answer. There was a man who fed his father fat, juicy chickens. One day his father asked him, My son, where do you get these? And he told his father, Old man, old man, eat and be quiet. Shut up. Eat like the dogs. I'm giving you the food. Don't ask me. According to the rabbis, this is a person who fed his father well, but ended up in Gehenna because of how he treated his father. How can a person make his father work hard at grinding and end up in Gan Eden, in the world to come in heaven? This is their answer. There was a miller. Miller's mill. We still have millers, right? We have to have someone grinding our bread, right? There was a miller. The king sent orders for his elderly father to come work for him as a slave. Kings can do that. The man said, Father, come to my workplace and grind for me in my place while I go to work as a slave for the king. If the king's worth is humiliating, let me be humiliated and not you. If I should be beaten while working, let me be beaten and not you. This is a person who made his father work hard at grinding and yet ended up in Gan Eden, says the Talmud. Okay, what do you think about either of these stories, anybody, that I just read? I think that in the 21st century, a lot of people discount the power of stories. Hmm. We, we live in, a, in an age of logic and science and people will say, oh, that's just a story. Mm. When in fact, in many ways, stories can be more powerful than logic. Mm. Beautiful. Anybody else? Pass it down. If anyone wants to put something in the chat, I can read it too. Right? Uh, I'm going to ask a quick question. Yes. Um, on that note, I was wondering, so the Talmud has all these stories. They're, I mean, they're already recorded. Yes, written. You're sharing them. Are these stories continuing to be to be written, cr- written and created? Because Talmud is is like a finite set. of Talmud was finished around done. 500, around the year 500. Yes. So the question was, 
Are we still writing stories? <clears throat> Are the rabbis still? Yes. We have all of the subsequent rabbinic literature <clears throat> is contained in, in fact, midrashic uh, collections, collections of midrash, which are rabbinic stories, are themselves mostly post-Talmudic. They continue to be collected together, rabbi stories about the same kinds of issues. And throughout the, up to today, we have what's called responsa literature. Responsa literature, of course, is that in every generation, including today, people trying to figure out, well, how do I apply whatever rules may have been from the past or ethics or values from the past to my current situation, like we have an internet, we didn't have that very long. We've only had, I mean, how long has the internet been around? But you know, 20 or 30 years, right? Like, you know, when... In its current form. In its current form. Like, when was the iPhone, you know, like, what, 12 years ago or 15 years ago or something? Not much more than that. Something like that. Crazy thing. When? 2004? Yeah, 2004. That's like terrifying to think about. 2004, this was invented, and the whole world has some version of this. More of them have Samsung, but the whole world has this, right? Literally, everywhere. Now I have a light. Everywhere. It's like, just like that. And it's transformed the world. So people had questions, and they would ask whoever the most prominent rabbi in town was, or famous rabbis, they would send letters like to Maimonides or anything like that, and in their responses, in their the answers, they would often include a story that would illustrate the answer to whatever it is that the the question was. And because Jews like to talk and tell stories, we have the whole vast literature of what we call Hasidic stories that grew up all over in Eastern Europe. We have Martin Buber stories. We have Elie Wiesel stories. We have all of the, so much of even modern contemporary Jewish literature is essentially that. It's using the, the method of storytelling to illustrate some kind of powerful point or even perhaps a, a legal decision that you have the microphone because you want to say something. It was handed to me before for the previous discussion. I'm yes. just listening now. Go ahead. No, you can <laughs> but, do. But no, no, I I forgot exactly what the question was. But my reaction to that story yeah. was simply that the the moral of that seemed to me to be that things are not always what they appear. Things are not always what they appear. Yes, yes. Don't judge a mitzvah by its cover. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so often we are one of a, one of our most common human traits is. Bert, you on the other side, is how quick we are to judgment. How quick we are to judgment. We judge other people. Uh, when I yesterday I was um, last night, you know, y'all, I have this project called Home Shalom that I'm doing, where I'm I'm uh, doing healthy relationship workshops for teens uh, in partnership with the Advote project. So Naomi Ackerman, who's the head of Advote, and I were at um, uh, two synagogues that combined in the Valley Conservative Synagogues at Shomer Torah last night with 17 Jewish teenagers doing uh, one of our healthy relationship workshops. We'll be there several times. And um, one of the ongoing conversations we were having with these teens was about how quick everybody is to think that they know what someone else is thinking. You know, by some word they said or some affect that they had or how they didn't pay attention to me when I was trying to get their attention and therefore I know, oh, they don't like me, they think I'm this amount, they think of this amount, blah, 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 and how quick we all are to assume that we know what someone else is thinking and then we go down there. This is like, this is like the gold mine of every soap opera, right? Every soap opera you watch, daytime or nighttime, every soap opera, it's, Somebody presumes something and then acts on it, and the whole story goes a different direction because somebody decides what that person really meant by what they said, which had nothing to do with always of the truth of what they meant by it, but they take it in a different direction because they simply didn't ask. They simply didn't check it out. They simply presumed. And it's so powerful because this is all of us. We all do that. We all are insecure. First of all, Rabbi Rubin's number one rule of life is everybody's insecure. 
Everybody's insecure. And those insecurities play out in many, many different ways. One of them is fear of rejection, which is an overwhelming one for everybody. And it plays itself out in relationships primarily by people trying to manipulate someone to get what they want without having to actually ask them, because if you ask them, the answer might be no. So if I can manipulate them and figure out how to get them to do it without me actually having to ask, then I've succeeded in getting what I want, rather than going like, here, this is what I want, whatever it happens to be, and actually being vulnerable enough. But the reality is, for those of you who are wrestling with relationships, that what we all want is intimacy in a relationship, And there's only one path to intimacy in a relationship, and that's through vulnerability. The only path to intimacy is through vulnerability. And the only way you get to vulnerability is by allowing yourself to be vulnerable, (laughs) allowing yourself the opportunity to have a experience rejection. It's the only way. And it's scary. And so most people don't do it. Because, and we so, part of being so quick to judge what everybody else thinks. Yeah, Carol. So I think I know the answer, but I have to ask. So was that saying that if I have abusive parents that minimally I need to house them with me? No, no, not with you. Just checking. You don't have to house them, your parents with you. Back to, uh, do my parents have to live with me? No, but if you have a like, you know... What do they call those things in the backyard? And, an ADU. Yeah. If you have something, or now you can. No. You, you, your, your job is to not let them be homeless, whatever that takes. But no, you are under no obligation to live with them. Thank you. Yes. Except for my daughter who has to have, take care of me and have me live with her if I want to. But I was just also thinking, and I don't want to bring up all the icky stuff, but it seems like with all the icky stuff that's going on in, in the world, the world yeah. we need more storytelling. We need more storytelling, yes. The world has a lot of icky stuff in it. Rise of anti-Semitism. You know, I, uh, we're, um, should I say this? Let's see. For my birthday weekend last weekend, Dita and I went to a casino. Am I supposed to say that? Yeah. So we went to Yamava. It's a great casino if you want to go to some. It's the closest one here. No smoking. It's the best thing. Anyway, we went there for a couple of days. As we were driving home, uh, on the 605, is that a freeway? 605. We were driving home on the 605. Big billboard by the side of the road. And the billboard said, do you have armed guards at your church? I have them at my synagogue. Do you have armed guards at your church? I have to have them at my synagogue. It's part of a campaign of billboards that are throughout L.A., acknowledging the reality of the rise of anti-Semitism. Um, and it got me thinking, of course, about here. We have an armed, armed guards here and about how amazing that is, thinking about growing up in Santa Monica, going to Beth Shalom Synagogue, 19th in California. Who would ever imagine that I needed, I would need to have armed guards at my synagogue? And I told this story, I don't think I told it here, <clears throat> somewhere that uh, you know that during Hanukkah uh, the, on the Third Street Promenade, there they set up a menorah, and every night they invite a different synagogue to go and light it and say prayers and whatever. And we do it every year, and I've done it for years and years and years. <clears throat> so this year I also was the person representing KI on whatever night it was of Hanukkah on the Third Street Promenade, lighting the menorah. I brought my guitar. You know, there were about 20 people there, maybe a little group, and it was night, you know, so there were people walking by, and and we had a little group, and we're lighting them on, and I'm singing songs. And as I'm standing there watching people go by and looking at this group, for the first time in my whole life, I was looking, watching everybody go by, wondering if someone was going to throw something at me, yell something at me, or somehow attack what I was doing. For the first time, maybe it was because the day before someone had scratched a swastika on the Chabad menorah in Beverly Hills, and that was in the news and I'd seen it, or just the context of America today, but it was the first time that I could ever remember literally being on edge, looking out, waiting to see if someone was going to somehow attack me for being a Jew lighting a celebrating a Jewish holiday 
on the third Sri Promenade. Broke my heart that I was thinking that way. You know, so that's the reality. So I watched the time. One final quick. Oh, yeah, yeah go ahead. Oh, I was Love just going to say, um, I love Talmud so much because the stories are so thoughtful and thought-provoking, and they really all go back to what you said at the beginning, how important words are. Yes. Words matter. Yes, and we throw words around often forgetting how powerful they can be, you know. Uh, okay, so have a couple of minutes. I don't think I read this one last week, last time. If I did, too bad. <clears throat> it's hard for me to remember what I do. I should write it down. So, this is a quick one. This is a quick one, because I'm going to end in a minute, about the punchline is, everything God does God is for good. This is how rabbis think. What can I tell you? Everything God does is for good. So, <clears throat> which is back to the you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. You can't always judge what you see. It's not always that way. So, in the Gemara, in Kiddushin, also, it tells this story. As an example of, everything God does is always for the good. When Rabbi Akiva was walking along the road, he came to a certain city. He inquired about lodging for the night, but they didn't have any for him. Nobody would put him up. You know, he was a rabbi a little anti-Semitism, nobody would give him a, a room to stay in. So he said, it's okay, Gamzula Tova. This is popular in the popular statement from the Talmud, Gamzula Tova, this too is for the good. He says, everything God does is for the best. So he went out and he slept in the field. And he had with him, while he was traveling, a rooster, a donkey, and a candle. Uh, unfortunately, a gust of wind came and extinguished the candle. So he then suddenly was in the dark, but he said, Gamzula Tova, everything that God does, God does for the best. That night, an army came and took the city into captivity. It turned out that Rabbi Akiva alone, who was not in the city and had no lit candle. Ah, sorry, I knew I skipped something. This wasn't making sense. So a gust of wind came and extinguished the candle. And then... A cat came and ate the rooster, and then a lion came and ate the donkey. Otherwise, the story doesn't make sense. Then he said, everything that God does is for the good. That night, an army came, took the city. Turned out, Rabbi Akiva, alone, was not in the city and had no lit candle and no noisy rooster and no donkey to give away his location, and so his life was saved. He said to his students, this was part of a lesson in the Talmud, didn't I tell you? Gamzula Tova, everything God does, God does for the good. I know that's the silliest story of them all, but I always liked it. So, <clears throat> here's the story. Thank you all for coming tonight. And <clears throat> um, this is February. I have another one in March. I have another one in April. And I am making a note that I'm going to find some stories about Theology and God, even though that was one, um, as a little taste. And some other fun stories from Talmud and Midrash that are my favorites. And uh, some of you live here in the, this city, and some of you I see are from far away. So thank you all for being here, and I will see you the next time.